Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. We are currently going through the book of Revelation. And you might say, what are we doing the book of Revelation for? Though? Why, are we, why have we gone through this book? really tricky, challenging book with lots of mystery there, maybe hard stuff to understand and some very difficult things today. We've got a very difficult passage today to go through as well. Uh, Revelation is a part of God's Word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we believe that, hey, we need to hear about that to uh, guide us and lead us as we grow in faith, particularly as we think about, uh, well, this is talking about the end in many respects the end so we we actually want to see what the end game is here and uh, actually understand what that is so we can live our life in the light of that that can bring glory and honor to Christ but also know how to live uh, in this end game as well Uh, again it's some tough stuff but uh, God wants us to hear that God wants us to hear that and actually do good to our souls as we work through the book of Revelation so I just want you to put the passcode in again All the security today's modern. You've got to put your passcode on your fingerprint. Gee. Okay. Um, who can remember back to Boxing Day 2004? Some of you will. Some of you probably weren't born at that particular time. Boxing Day 2004. Uh, you'll remember there was a massive earthquake under the sea that occurred that caused a tsunami to race across the Indian Ocean where more than 227,000 people across a number of countries died. Uh, Since that devastating disaster way back then, about 27 countries have joined together to put in place a tsunami detection system around the oceans of the world. This system works as the International Tsunami uh, Warning System. What's it do? They've got these things floating out in the oceans and they detect ocean currents and ocean levels. And what they're looking for is obviously a sudden rise or something that is uh, like a tsunami. And it sends off a warning alarm to say there's an incoming tsunami. Why does a tsunami need a warning alarm? Well, you think that's a silly question. Of course we know why that is. It warns us because they bring massive danger. There was one in Japan just a few years back. Same thing, just uh, massive amounts of water flowed into that country. We are warned danger is coming when those tsunami detection systems go off. Prepare for it now. Head for higher ground. Well, uh, this is where John's going to take us today in Revelation 14. Not so much warning us of tsunami, but warning us that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Prepare for it now. Go to your Bibles and let's have a look at uh, Revelation 14. We're just going to read the first 13 verses and uh, think our way through that. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked... And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. 
It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who followed the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours for their deeds follow them. Father, thank you. Thank you today that we get this uh, privilege, this privilege to read this text, to read this passage from the Bible. Maybe people sitting here right now, Lord, thinking, what was all that about? Or we heard some really troubling stuff there right in the middle of that passage. Now, we ask, and I ask, Holy Spirit, right now, please, would you come? Would you come and begin to open up our eyes to the truth that's being communicated through this passage so that our hearts will be softened and our hearts will be drawn to Jesus and our hearts will be healed? Our hearts will be filled with hope and peace now as we talk about this passage. Lord, we ask that we pray that now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, um, Revelation 14, that passage we just read there then, stands in direct contrast to what we looked at in Revelation 13 just last Sunday. And if you want to go back to that, you can certainly go back to the website and watch that talk again on there. Uh, We saw, and prior to that, we saw in Revelation 12, so 12, 13 and 14, those three chapters, is we see Satan was standing on the seashore, as it were, filled with rage, uh, directed towards uh, the world and towards particular followers of Jesus. Then we see in Revelation 13 that the anger of Satan is actually working through worldly governing structures or authorities, uh, causing deception and destruction upon all people, as Satan actually uses them and influences them to bring about deception and influence upon the world. Now, uh, we get to Revelation 14, the passage we just read there. At the start that we saw, we see the Lamb, which is Jesus, standing victoriously upon Mount Zion with the 144,000, given Revelation symbolic language, the 144,000 represents all the people of God there uh, with Jesus the Lamb in that particular scene. What John is doing, the writer of the book of Revelation, John is giving us a contrast It's a contrast between chapter 13 of last week 
and chapter 14 as we come into this one. What he's saying is a bit like this. He's saying, yeah, it's a really tough gig to, li- to living in this world as a Christian under the deceptive rule of Satan working through these governing authorities. That's what he was telling us there through Revelation 13. But he says, look at this. Ultimately, look at the reality of Revelation 14, the next chapter, where Jesus is victorious and his rule will finally subdue and defeat all enemies. You get this picture of Jesus standing here, as it were, on Mount Zion, victorious with all his people with him. It's a contrast between chapter 13 and chapter 14. Now, as far as the book of Revelation is concerned, if you've been tracking with us, chapter 14 is actually fast closing in on the end of the world. Hasn't happened yet, but that's what John's talking about here. He's fast closing in on the end of the world. Now, you might think, isn't that still the stuff we see in movies? Well, you might, but it's reality. God says one day this world will end. It will stop. John, as it were, is now seeing this final call of salvation because eternal judgment is imminent. It's imminent as far as John's concerned here in the book of Revelation. Chapters 14 and 18, as we're about to get into over the next few weeks, we won't do next week, well, Mother's Day, we'll do a separate um, talk for that, but chapters 14 and 18 are probably some of the most solemn and awe-filled chapters that you'll read in all of the Bible. Uh, It's the final judgment upon all people who don't worship Jesus and reject the gospel. Even a couple of verses we read there, if we just stop and reflect on some of those, it's the sort of stuff that takes your breath away. That's for the next few weeks though. Here's our big idea for today. God rules over all creation and will finally crush and judge all the evil, deceptive dominion of Satan and all who follow him. God rules over all creation and will finally crush and judge all the evil, deceptive dominion of Satan and all who follow him. Sort of shaping where we're going to be heading today as we think about that. Firstly, though, John wants to reassure the people in this present tribulation and what they're going through back then is there. This is, I remember again, written 2,000 years ago. They're going through a present tribulation. He wants to remind them of the assurance of their salvation, building their confidence in what Christ has done for them. He's saying, God has redeemed you. God has brought you back. Verses 1 to 5 gives us this picture here of this gathered people, as it were, singing uh, a song of praise and worship to our glorious sovereign Lord. We've been rescued. We've been saved. Verse 3 picks it up beautifully for us. It says this in verse 3, And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed... That's the key word there, redeemed from the earth. Nobody can sing that song. And it's not the song the boys sing after they win a football match either in the club rooms with a Gatorade chair. It's not that. Nobody can sing this song. It's a special song of rejoicing here in the glorious redemption that Jesus has effected for us on our behalf. It's all done by Christ. John, as it were, is beginning to just... um, let the gospel come back up to the surface again, even at the beginning of this chapter, right from the get-go here, he's saying it's the redeemed. It's those who've been bought. Now, First Corinthians chapter 6 has this same word here. See if you can pick it up. It's actually saying the same thing. Uh, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That bought with a price is the same word there that John uses in uh, Revelation 14. Bought, redeemed, bought back. The picture is this. Uh, We are sold to sin as slaves. We are slaves to sin. We have habits and addictions uh, that are sinful and that are causing all sorts of destruction in our lives. They bind us up. It's really like we can be chained to these things and we can't break these chains of addiction and habits in our lives, these sinful habits, these habits that go against the way God has created us. How are we chained? Well, some of us can be chained to pornography. We just can't shake it. Some of us can be chained to jealousy. We're just jealous about everything and anything. We can't shake that. Or some of us can be chained to putting other people down so we can elevate ourselves up. It's all about puffing me up. It'll push other people down to do that. It's like we're chained to these things and they're not things that honour and glorify God. What does Jesus do? He redeems us. He redeems us from this slave market of sin, as it were. He pays the ransom price of our sin, which is his blood, and he buys us back, takes away the, uh, the price of that sin. And then when we, uh, when we understand that and we know that, we can actually join in with the song that they're singing here at Mount Zion. We can sing that gospel song because the Holy Spirit's revealed that into our hearts, who Jesus is and what he's done for us. You see, this is where John starts. He's creating this contrast here, thinking about where they were in Revelation 13. Now this beautiful picture emerging at the start of chapter 14. It starts with redemption. It starts with the foundation of the gospel, standing victorious with Jesus on Mount Zion. John moves on, though. In verses 6 to 11, we see here now that John sees three angels that are sent out with three messages. Now, are these literal angels doing this calling or is it the work of the church in these final days now again as we think about the type of literature that um, revelation is written in, it's apocalyptic it's just, it's sort of this end time literature we believe it's very very symbolic and for what it's worth i think it's the work of the church here is what these angels are representing when they go out with these three messages they're the believers who are still on the earth and these are the messages that we go out with uh, these messages we see here again as, as, as they're proclaimed, we actually see this circular nature here of what John's doing through the book of Revelation. He circles back a number of times on same themes and same sort of uh, topics. He's done that quite a few times in, in uh, Revelation. Uh, these messages here that these angels have got are primarily warnings, warnings, of God's imminent judgment upon humanity for their willful rebellion against him. We are getting really towards the pointy end of the book of Revelation. Verses 6 and 7, we see the first message. And there it's an eternal gospel that is proclaimed. Now, I reckon there's two purposes here that are happening with this eternal gospel that the church is able to proclaim in these end days, in these last days. One purpose is this. One purpose is I believe people can still be saved by hearing this message. They can still be rescued from God's imminent judgment that is coming through the proclamation, through the communicating of this message. It's an appeal there, and that, as we see it there in, in uh, verse 6 and 7, it's an appeal there to look at nature. 
It's to see God's handiwork. Talking about the Lord there of the oceans and the seas and the springs. It's, it's, it's a picture of look at the beauty and complexity of nature and how can, you refu- how, can, how can you possibly think this has not been made by a creator? How could you refuse to accept that? It's, a, it's an appeal to nature to lead us towards the creator who's created everything. Now, I think that's the first purpose here of this first message. The second purpose, I think, will be this. It will be to, to convict people of their guilt towards God. You've heard the gospel again. It's been proclaimed by a friend. It's been proclaimed by the church. And you know judgment is coming. You've heard this. And yet you still uh, refuse to believe in God. You still refuse to listen to God's warnings. It'll be like a conviction upon you. You heard it. What, What evidence have you got to say that you didn't know? So it'll serve two purposes here, this eternal gospel going out. One is, yes, some people will be saved and we look forward to that. But the other is it'll serve a convicting purpose as well. You heard it again and you rejected it. The second message comes out in verse 8 and it says this, Babylon is fallen. Babylon is fallen. What does that mean? Well, Babylon represents probably Rome in there, which Rome was the dominant culture of the day. So what John's saying here is Babylon is the world system of life. The world as we know it, it's falling. It's coming down. In other words, everything that this world has built itself upon to sustain itself from life apart from God, not in God or with God, but everything apart from God, John's saying it's coming down. It's all about to end. The life of prosperity and pleasure and peace that you may have got from Rome or from this world in token ways, in broken ways, in total disregard for who God is, John's saying, it's finishing, it's fallen, it's imminent. You see, what we seek after in this world in the way of peace and joy and fulfilment is exactly what God desires us to have. That's how God wants us to live, with peace, joy and fulfilment. Except we seek it apart from God. We don't seek it through God as our creator and our life giver. We're a people who seek peace and joy and fulfilment, but we'll seek it through living self-centred lives of brokenness. We'll seek it through all sorts of other manners without looking at it or looking for it through God. We're happy enough to use other people to sort of, as it were, trot on them to get what we want in looking for peace, joy and fulfilment, but not the way God has designed us to. But John's saying it's all coming down. Babylon is fallen. Not just fallen to rise again. In the context of Revelation, it's falling down and is not going to rise again. It's over. It's done. There's a third message here that I believe the church will be delivering in this time. Verses 9 to 11, we see incredibly sober verses. It's a warning here of eternal doom and gloom for all those who receive the mark of the beast in these end days. Thinking back to Revelation 13, we saw there that the mark indicates that if you receive it, if you receive the mark of the beast, which is the mark of the world, you are throwing your lot in with the world. You're saying, I'm not having anything to do with God. My identification is with the world and not with God, my creator. 
It's all about them and not about him. And what John's saying here in this is this. Yep, the world looks very powerful. These governing authorities are very persuasive. They rule the roost. And in many respects, it would be so much easier just to identify with this world, identify with their structures and actually just go with the flow. It would be so much easier to just fall in with them in life. But John's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. If you compromise and if you identify with this world, you've turned your back upon God. He says judgment is coming. God is about to expose this whole corrupted thing and pronounce final judgment on it. Now our next talk in a couple of weeks' times will open up this in much more detail and depth. But for today, the end is nigh. It's very near in Revelation 14 in the whole scheme of things. Judgment is coming. Verses 12 and 13, as we step through, through as John's uh, talking to us here more and writing stuff to us, John's purposes here, again, for writing to these seven churches of Asia Minor, we can begin to see are in verses 12 and 13. He says there it's a call for endurance in verse 12. It's a call to endure through whatever you might be facing at this time. And it's much the same as the last sermon we looked at. Again, it was a call to endurance. John isn't here, as it were, to tickle the ears of the people of the churches of Asia Minor. He's not here, as it were, just to sort of make them feel good. He's here to strengthen them. He's here actually to wake them up. He's here to stir them. He's here to remind them again. Some of you are persevering really well in these seven churches that John is writing to. And, but some of you are on the verge of compromise. You're right on the verge of actually just rolling over and just falling in with the world. And some of these churches that John's writing to, uh, their brothers and sisters are going to jail as they stand strong in Christ. Others are going next level. They're being killed for simply standing with Christ. It's a really challenging time. John's writing to these people again. He wants to see them conquer this world and not compromise, not compromise and fall over. He wants to see them have this real and ultimate blessing here that God has for us as we think about what's happening in Revelation. And look at verse 13 because we actually begin to see this blessing here. And it says this in verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds follow them. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Doesn't really make sense that, does it? In a natural sense. Blessed are the dead. From a natural sense, like, who wants to die? Nobody wants to die. But John's saying there, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. See, here's the contrast that John wants us to see as we think about this chapter in the comparison chapter. You can either buckle under to the pressure of this world and eventually die and then meet God in judgment and never experience rest from his terrors. That's one path you can take. You can buckle under and just, yep, I'll roll with the world. Or you can resist the falseness and the deceptions of this world and possibly die doing so, 
possibly die doing so, and then meet God in glory and in perfect rest and will be not in judgment. John's giving them two options here. One's going to end up in judgment, the other's going to end up in glory. What will it be? What's the better way to go? Well, he's saying here, blessed it is to die in the Lord. Your fighting against sin is over. The temptations that you've been battling with all your life, they're finished. Your resisting this broken culture and its broken ways has actually come to an end now. All of the challenges you faced in this world are finished. And I'm, not in, and I'm now in this perfect presence of Jesus for eternity. He says, blessed. Blessed are you when you die in the Lord. And I really love this little bit here. It's like the Holy Spirit is sitting on the side here and he can't help himself. He says, oh yes, blessed indeed are you. It's like the Holy Spirit just has to add in there, you are more blessed than you can ever imagine. You can't see it now in the midst of your trials, but there's a blessing coming when you die that you cannot conceive of. It's like the Holy Spirit just wants to open up our eyes to that some small way. It's like you've rested from your labours in this world, but in some remarkable way, our good deeds done for Jesus follow with us and somehow they increase our joy after we've died. Now, I don't know how that will be, but I look forward to that. I know many of you look forward to that as well. Many of us labouring hard to try and see Christ magnified in our lives. Somehow, when we die that those labours will increase our joy in eternity. Blessed indeed, says the Holy Spirit, when that happens. Can you see what John's doing here for these people in their struggle? When these hurting people here are looking for strength, looking for strength to just hold on in the challenge they're facing, John's actually reminding them again of the end game. He's reminding them where this is all going to finish. And there's others who are sitting on the fence of eternity. Some of those ones, they're just sort of balancing on the fence. Which way will I go? Will I just fall over to the world or will I sort of hang in there with Jesus? He's reminding them again of the end game. He's trying to actually prompt them. Say, no, there's so much at stake here. Jesus has poured out his life for you. Don't just sit on the fence and just fall over to the world. Understand what Jesus has done. He's reminding them of the end game. Now, as I think about this today, I ask myself, where does it land when we think about what's happening between Revelation 13 and 14 and we get to this really pointy end here? Judgment is coming, imminent. I believe it's got to drive us in a few different directions here as we seek to glorify God and experience his love and show that love to others. If we are aware... If we are aware that God's judgment is coming, shouldn't that do something in our hearts? Shouldn't that trigger something in our hearts towards those who aren't following Jesus at this time? Shouldn't our hearts feel a sense of fear for what's coming for all those who've rejected Jesus at this point in time? Shouldn't it do something within us as we know that and we know what's coming. Maybe just stop and think about this. Stop and think about this farming family who may be living next door to you. Think about what's going to happen to them if they don't come to Jesus 
and judgment comes? What's going to happen to them? Think about your next door neighbour. The person sometimes you might meet as you're both driving out of the driveways at the same time. What's going to happen to them if they don't come to Jesus with judgment coming? Think about the person you work with. Think about the person you go to school with. Think about the person you may do sport with. What's going to happen to them if they don't trust in Jesus and judgment comes? What are they going to face? And horrendous eternal judgment. See, knowing judgment is coming must move us with love and compassion towards those who are yet to bow the knee to Jesus. It must do something within us. It's got to. It should. Look what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5.11. He says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul's getting it. He knows what's coming. I want to persuade others. I want them to see Jesus. Now, as I said a few weeks ago, the message of judgment isn't where we start when we actually are trying to tell people about Jesus, but it's got to be in the back of our minds when we think about people. It's got to be there. Try and imagine them standing before God's judgment seat with no advocate, with no one to vouch for them, with no way of salvation. Think about that when God says... Depart from me, I never knew you. It's got to change the way we see people. It's got to change the way we see people. But Todd, you don't know these people. They don't want Jesus. They're not interested in God. They're not interested in Jesus. That's my next door neighbour. They're just really content with their job and their career and they've planned their next holiday and they're not even thinking about Jesus. They're not even thinking about the end of the world. You, you need to know who these people are. Yeah, I get that because I've got the same friends you've got. I get that. I understand that salvation is a miracle that God performs. It's he who awakens a spiritually dead person. It's God who does that. It's God who makes the first move in calling people to himself. It's God who actually is the one who opens up eyes so they can truly see who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. I get that. And we need God's Spirit to work and move in people's lives to be able to see this. So if we know that, and if we know that judgment is imminent surely it must move us to pray. It must, if we are truly loving these people. If we are to see these people converted and saved, people born again for the first time, which is what we long to see, surely then we must pray for them. I've been reading a biography uh, of the last month or so about George Whitfield. Uh, from the 1700s, who was part of a massive revival across America and Great Britain. Uh, Phenomenal read. This this guy, by the power of God's spirit, 
drew crowds up to 40,000 people in outdoor meetings to hear the gospel without amplification. It's a stirring read. He preached the gospel to a culture that was spiritually weak and dead. And the gospel that he preached is no different to the gospel that we have today. It's exactly the same. George Whitfield preached Christ crucified and warned them of the judgment to come. He wasn't afraid to declare the truth. Slightly different context and culture time, but the same gospel. And by God's grace, he saw thousands of people won to Jesus Christ over a period of about 30 odd years. But George Whitfield also did this as well. He prayed. And he asked the Lord to move on mightily by his spirit to awaken dead hearts to Jesus. George Whitfield met with multiple groups of people focused on praying, calling out to God that he would move upon hearts to see uh, the good news of Christ awaken in people's hearts. And God graciously answered those prayers and saw multiple thousands in that period of time saved. George Whitfield prayed. I read a sermon a little while back by Charles Spurgeon. September the 3rd, 1871, he preached a sermon called Travailing for Souls. Charles Spurgeon was another one who actually got this idea of imminent judgment. Here he laid out the vast masses who are around about us in London back then, in Shepparton today, unsaved. And he said that must move us to pray. It must stir our hearts to pray. And then Charles Spurgeon uh, finished his message with this story, which I'm going to read for you today and we'll put it up there as well. He says this, Do any of you desire your children's conversions? You shall have them saved when you agonise for them. Many a parent who's been privileged to see his son walking in the truth will tell you that before the blessing came, he had spent many hours in prayer and earnest pleading with God. And then, it, and then it was that the Lord visited his child and renewed his soul. I've heard of a young man who had grown up and left the parental roof and through evil influences had been enticed into holding sceptical views. His father and mother were earnest Christians and it almost broke their hearts to see their son so opposed to the Redeemer. On one occasion they induced him to go with them to hear a celebrated minister. He accompanied them simply to please them and for no higher motive. The sermon happened to be upon the glories of heaven. It was a very extraordinary sermon and was calculated to make every Christian in the audience leap for joy. The young man was much gratified with the eloquence of the preacher, but nothing more. He gave him credit for superior oratorical ability and was interested in the sermon, but felt none of its power. He chanced to look at his father and mother during the discourse and was surprised to see them weeping. He could not imagine why they, being Christian people, should sit and weep under a sermon which was most jubilant in its strain. When he reached home, he said, Father, we have had a capital sermon, but I could not understand what could make you sit there and cry, and my mother too. His father said, My dear son, I certainly had no reason to weep concerning myself, nor your mother, but I could not help thinking all through the sermon about you. For alas, I have no hope that you will be a partaker in the bright joys which await the righteous. It breaks my heart to think you'll be shut out of heaven. His mother said, The very same thoughts crossed my mind. 
And the more the preacher spoke of the joys of the saved, the more I sorrowed for my dear boy that he should never know what they were. That touched the young man's heart, led him to seek his father's God, and before long he was at the same communion table rejoicing in God and Saviour whom his parents worshipped. Prayer. Earnestly pleading, travailing, getting the picture of eternal judgment. It's real. Driving him. Driving us. This is where Revelation's at. It's at the last call. It's at the final call. It's a warning call. There's a tsunami of judgment coming. It's dark and it's gloomy. An end for all those who rejected Jesus. But mercy is still available. The time clock of grace still ticks. It's not here yet. Surely, at the very least, it must drive us to pray. We don't want anybody to experience God's wrath. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as we uh, finish this passage here in Revelation chapter 14. Lord, we know that you are just, you are holy, you are good, you are righteous in every way. You can do no wrong. Father, we thank you today that you have given us grace even to warn us of your judgment that is coming. God, I thank you for each and every person that sits here now and believes that, and has prepared for that by putting their trust in Christ alone. I thank you for that work of grace you've done in their hearts. Lord, for those who are sitting before me today, maybe have heard this for the first time. God, I pray that you would be pleased to use this to begin to awaken their hearts to a glorious creator who has rescued us and has saved us through the blood of his son. Not one of us has deserved that, but out of love and grace you've poured that out for us. And today, Lord, is a day of grace. Today, Lord, is a day of mercy. Today, Lord, is a day of hope. I pray, Lord, please be pleased to open up eyes and ears right now that people would be miraculously saved and they would join in with that song, Lord. They would sing that gospel song. Help us, Lord, in the meantime... Keep looking at people with this perspective. Judgment is coming. Let that be a motivator, Lord, to drive us on in the mission and to pray. To put in, Lord, that travailing, earnest pleading before the throne of grace. That, Lord, you would move upon hearts and bring people into a living and loving relationship with Christ. And that they would truly experience that eternal peace and joy and happiness that only you can give. Do that work, I pray. Do it for your name's sake, we ask. And we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person. So consider yourself invited to be with us. 